Inconceivable! Hey, Doc, we better back up. We don't have enough roads to get up to 88. Roads? Where we're going, we don't need roads. I think something's taking over our school. The body's not just as a story somebody made up, Dingus. It's located in the fiction section of the line. Yeah, and so is Schiller's List. Look, all fiction is based on some truth, right? What does Miss Berg teach us in English 101? Write what you know. Yes, I did it. I killed Yvette. I hated her so much. It, it, the, it flamed, flames, flames on the side of my face. Now I have a machine gun. So what's your name, Icy? Stuntman Mike. Stuntman Mike's your name. You ask anybody. Hey, Warren. Who is this guy? Stuntman Mike. Everybody and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where we are about to inaugurate episode number 100. We're doing a pick of our favorite movies of all time. I am the picker, and it's going to be Mulholland Drive. But before we get into all of that, we need to do some introductions. Across the table, if you would, sir. My name is Dalton Stewart, and being as this is the first time we've ever recorded in the AM, I am have without movie quotes, and it's too early for me to speak Spanish. Very, very good. Thank you very no much. No, I. What, what, what is it, Dustin? Silencio? No, no, no. No, I, uh, no, I, bando. no, I, un banda. <laughs> no, I, un banda. <laughs> no, I, un orchestra. Uh, to my left, ma'am, if you would. My name's Alexander Bohannon. And no, you're not thinking, Dalton. You're too busy being a smart aleck to be thinking. And now I want you to think and stop being a smart aleck. Can you try that for me? That would be nice. That would be very, very nice. Uh, my name is Dustin Sells, but you can just call me Coco. Everyone else does. Nice. <laughs> well, the movie at hand is... <laughs> I was trying to think. What is it Billy Ray Cyrus says? Oh, I'm so glad that Billy just Ray Cyrus leave, is man. in this movie. Just leave, man. Just, you know, just pretend like you never saw anything. <laughs> That's what I want. <laughs> pretend like you never saw anything. <laughs> yes, no way to treat your wife. I don't care what she's done to you. There we go. That's what I was thinking of, actually. Well, all right. The film is Mulholland Drive. Much fun was had by all, but let's begin the show. We got to warn you, dear listener, this is not a review show, or not a review show at all. It is an analysis show. There will be spoilers, although spoilers may aid you in watching the movie, as this is one of those films that you're not ready to watch until you've already watched it. That about covers it. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I, I would argue it's not good until it's brilliant. I'd say that it's not good until it's over. <laughs> But not in the way that you think. <laughs> she means that in a positive, sort of, you know, backhanded sense. But we're going to begin with our quick synopsis from the voice of the cinema, Mr. Arthur Gordon, again behind the plate glass window of the sound booth. And uh, then we are going to move right into our quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. And then the spoilers will be coming quickly as we bring our analysis. Mr. Arthur Gordon, voice of the cinema. If After a car wreck on the winding Mulholland Drive renders a woman amnesiac, she and a perky Hollywood hopeful search for clues and answers across Los Angeles in a twisting venture beyond dreams and reality. 
Very good. I she think is that's quite a, perky. That is the most accurate synopsis this film could possibly have, I think. Yeah, there's no other way to describe it adequately. It's kind of a mess and uh, a lot of fun in that way. But let's begin with our quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. Miss Alexandra Bohannon, what say you? Well, I have to say I had no idea what I was getting into because I had little to no warning from all of my friends. It's this podcast, so they're like, watch Mulholland Drive because I couldn't watch it with them. And so I did. I got it and I watched it. And I was questioning myself as to why I was still here most of the way through. Um, <laughs> it is shooting and was good. I mean, they have lots of stylistic elements, obviously. Clues are woven purposely throughout the entire plot, which, you know, that's, from what I understand, is Lynch's uh, prime directive to do so, is to weave telltale signs throughout like that. Um it's very it's very different and the I have to say if you watch it you should because it's good you need to give it kind of a, a resting period after you watch it where you just kind of wait and just so, soak it in because that's what it requires and then you realize that this is really good I would probably give it another another watch and when I was done with the movie I'm like I'm never going to watch that movie again so take that as you will. Just the more distance you get away from it, I think the more you enjoy it. And I'd say that they'd say the same. Yeah, you need to marinate in a cup of Winkies coffee afterwards. Not and, Denny's. Not Denny's. Yeah. And then you'll sort of understand. Thank it, yeah, exactly. So I'd say you can have um, eight mysterious keys out of 11.25. Very good. Thank you very much, Miss Alexander Bohan. And Mr. Dalton Stewart, what say you in review? I was convinced for about half an hour this movie was absolute garbage. Likewise. Be- no, me too. Sh- because it's shot to look like absolute garbage. It's shot to look like a shitty TV show. And it's acted like a shitty TV show. Oh my god. She drove me up the wall. Like, the only time I actually believed her acting as the perky Betty was whenever she did the audition sequence. And I'm like, oh, someone's acting now. Oh my god. Oh, and then god. it goes away. Oh, I'll get, we'll get there. Yeah. Oh, man. Um... And then the longer it went on, the more and more I was like, this might be brilliant, but I'm pissed. Yes. I'm angry that it thinks it's brilliant. I'm angry at how pretentious it is. And then the last hard, and then the last half hour happened and my fucking brain exploded in the best possible way. This movie sucks until it's a masterpiece cuz it is that good. It is absolutely astonishingly brilliant and just really really good. But it takes some time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, again, Dustin keeps saying you're not ready to watch it until you've watched it. And I think that about covers it. I was able to watch it with Dustin, and he was able to kind of hold my hand through uh, both literally and figuratively and, and helping me decipher. of my life. You're welcome. And helping me decipher this, uh, this, a- this absolute cluster of a movie. Uh, and again, Lynch somehow finds a way to make it all work perfectly. And I, I don't know how, because it doesn't seem like it should. Again, the everyone is acting like they're acting in big quotes. The only moment we get without that in the first half is, um, or rather the first three quarters really, is Naomi Watts in that audition, which is an amazing scene. Mm-hmm. And she plays it totally differently than that scene is written, which is fascinating, and plays it really much closer to what we find out she's more like later on. Um, you're playing a very dangerous game, Dustin. 
you know what? But if you kill me, they'll just arrest you. My father's upstairs. <laughs> um, man, that scene floored me. And that was the moment where I was like, there's something going on in this film that defies what you think. And, and, and that moment, I think, if you're in at that moment, um, I, I think you're going to like this a lot. But, uh, listener, it's not, it's, it's not easy to get into. It's very opaque. Um, and it probably would behoove you to have a, a friend uh, there that's seen it already to tell you as much as you want to know. Um, there are some things they shouldn't tell you, but but it certainly helps to have someone there to kind of be like, okay, this is what's happening right now. Um, but man, yeah, I really liked it. I'm going to give it nine giant cowboy hats and two buckets of pink paint out of a possible 14. Cowboy hats covered in pink paint? Yeah, sure, why not? Okay. Outstanding. Thank you very much, Mr. Dollar. Oh, wait. And one, and one seemingly pointless golf club. Yes. Well, um, of course, in review, this is my pick. Um, it was uh, it is one of my favorite movies of all time, and I wanted to choose it um, just for the sake of uh, imposing it um, to inflict it upon my co-hosts. How many times have you watched this movie? Oh, I don't know, maybe a dozen. Do you? Does your analysis or your interpretation of things change like every time? I'm assuming you see something new every time you watch it. Um, this last, I watched it again after um, me and Dalton watched it just to kind of get ready for the show, and I realized that the uh, the hitman has uh, two different colored eyes. And that's why he looks so weird in the murdering scene. He looks like he's squinting, but I'm like, what is wrong with that this guy? scene is absolutely hysterical. Yes, it is. Yeah, it's so funny. Is that the baby? And I was so annoyed. I was I was equally parts amused and annoyed because, again, you have no context for it at first. Mm-hmm. And she's like, what? What is this bullshit? What is this shenanigans? What is happening? Yeah. yeah. But so, yeah, Dustin kept looking at, while we were watching. Dustin kept saying to me, I've never noticed that before. Mm-hmm. I've never noticed that before. And again, you've seen time. it dozens of times. And so it really does grow on you. Um, I also, I happen to notice that the uh, boardroom that they are in, um, the uh, logo of the uh, two spotlights is a play on the uh, the Weinstein Brothers uh, company logo. And so, I mean, that, again, there's little little Easter eggs throughout uh, the film as you watch it. It's just, it th- that makes it very, very brilliant. It's a lot of fun. It's very well acted. Uh, Naomi Watts was nominated for an Academy Award for her performance, and uh, it's acting. I mean, she's doing what she's doing, and uh, it's just fantastic. It's one of my, again, one of my favorites of all time, and I'm very, very glad uh, that we're here watching it. But let's move on. Um, lots and lots of fun there with review, but this is no review show. This is an analysis show, and so we come now to bring the thunder of analysis uh, to David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. What say you, Mr. Dalton Stewart? You know, this movie really... Uh... It was hard to to digest, Um, both, again, in terms of the first half of the film being basically incomprehensible, uh, and once the film becomes comprehensible, just how bleak it is and really kind of heart-wrenching. I mean, you often – the two-word phrase you hear most often when you hear about this is Poison Valentine. Uh, th- this being kind of a, a sideways glance at Hollywood and all the, the offers, you know, the dreams it promises to fulfill. But what we see here is a woman who, who has gone to Hollywood and failed um, and desperately wishes that she hadn't. You know, in her fantasy, she's this amazing actress. I mean, absolutely phenomenal. That audition scene, chills, man, chills. I watched that a hundred times. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, and then we, you know, again, we follow Betty and it's just like, who is this fucking person? Who is she? And then the blue box opens, and Betty becomes 
I can't remember. Diane. Diane, thank you. Uh, and Diane is just a sad shell of a person. And the clues are kind of there throughout the first chunk of the film, but the more we get with Diane, the more we realize she's a sad shell of a person because she's killed somebody she cared for very deeply, or at least um, caused the death of someone she cared for very deeply, um, if not directly killing them. So I thought about it, uh, and the more I thought about it, the more I kept landing on this idea of of love. And I don't mean love in the storybook idea. I mean love in the bad way, the, the, the bad touch, if you will. The I feel Because that's what we have with Diane. Uh, with Betty, I don't even think Betty has the, you know, the frontal cortex abilities to have love with anyone. Yeah, whenever she goes, I, I think I'm in love with you in the sex scene, I'm just like, where the fuck did that come from? <laughs> well, and, it, and it's very much shot like a Hollywood sex scene, too. Especially a Hollywood, you know, what a Hollywood sex scene of two broads would look like. And then later we get one that looks a little less so. Uh, that looks yeah. a little bit more th- one that looks like there isn't space for a guy, which uh, and again that second half of the film or the last quarter of the film is all about shedding the veneer uh, of Hollywood and shedding the veneer of glitz and glamour and just showing the dirt and the grime and that's what we get when we get to see what Diane really feels uh, about uh, Laura Harding's characters whose names I also have forgotten. Rita and uh, Betty in the dream. Rita and Betty, that's right. Um, no, no, no. What's um, Laura Harding's real I name? It's Laura. Oh, real Laura is Camilla. Camilla. She, she's the real Camilla Rhodes. Yeah, that's right. So Betty has this weird kind of like interest and fixation in Rita, but in real life, she is obsessed with Diane um, because Diane left her to sleep her way up the ladder. Mm-hmm. Wait, Diane is Betty, though. No, Diane is no, Rita. Betty, no, you're right. Betty, Betty, and, Betty sorry. is Diane. Betty's Rita Diane. Rita is Camilla. Camilla. Sorry. See, that's the kind of movie we're talking about, listener. Right. Um, but anyway, when, once we meet Diane and we see what her relationship with Camilla is like and what she's done to Camilla and what she's done to herself because of what she's done to Camilla, you really see it's very easy for you to look at this film as, you know, what we do to the people we care about. Uh, especially if we're unable to separate our feelings for someone from who we are. Um, Because make no mistake, Diane slash Betty is obsessed with Camilla slash Rita. Uh, Betty's is kind of more of an infatuation, whereas uh, whereas, uh, Diane's feelings are full-tilt craziness, Um, both in terms of jealousy and both in terms of still wanting her, which is why she, you know, pays to have her murdered. But more than what we do to the people we love, I, I think what Mulholland Drive strives at uh, a lot of the time is the lies we tell ourselves to justify the things that we do. 
to the people we care about and to ourselves. Um, because, you know, the bulk of this movie takes place in, you know, Diane's kind of cracked out fever dream where she is just living this perfect fantasy of her of her life and incorporating all these people that she's seen at cocktail parties and out on the street uh, and her friends and, and close ones and incorporating them into this dream where she's not only the greatest actress, uh, but she'll also probably be recognized for it. Whereas we don't really know if Diane was any kind of actress, but we know that nothing's ever going to come of it. Uh, but Betty might. And Diane continues to lie to herself. Well, in this world, not only does Camilla love me, but she wants to be just like me. Mm-hmm. I don't strive to be what Camilla became. Camilla strives to be what I am. She remolds her in her image in a really kind of troubling scene. Um, that, again, I just think it's at the, the root of this. We we do these things to people when we, we can't separate infatuation from actual love. Well, it's an odd piece of Freudian theory that everyone in your dreams is actually you. Exactly, Uh, and some reflection thereof, Mm -hmm. which I think is really interesting. Again, Dustin pointed that out to me, that not only is this a dream, everyone is her and everyone is them. And I think that really helps with the first half of this film in understanding both Betty's behavior and the behavior of everyone else in this weird world. Um, And, you know, Justin Theroux's character, which seems to not really have any bearing on the main plot of that first half when you think about him being an extension of Betty, you know, totally getting the shaft from this rigged studio system. There's some more to it. And also having someone he loves um, philander on him. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, if if you understand that as being part of Betty's subconscious, I think we get more understanding here of not only what Betty Diane has done, but also what Diane Betty um, feels about what's happened. What well, and she done. hates Adam anyway, so she tortures him to an extent. As well. Exactly, yeah. and that's yeah. I mean, Adams just has about the worst day he could possibly have, um, because he took Camilla from her. Now, again, Camilla made her choices, and that, that's what she decided. But Diane doesn't see it that way. She mm-hmm. sees it as one being left, and two having something stolen from her. Not just having love stolen from her, but having her career stolen from her. Uh, and again, it, it all comes back to this idea that that Diane is incapable of processing these bad things that are happening to her. So instead she chooses to internalize and twist them and then they become something that's more palatable for her. Uh, she lies to herself. I mean, she kills somebody that at the very least she thinks she loves um, and just chooses to, to live in this fantasy. And at the end, when she finally comes to terms with what she's done, she can't digest the lie that she's been living any longer. She maybe question mark kills herself. Mm hmm. Because sometimes the lie is what you need to hold everything up. You know, the lie that justifies your behavior, that that allows you to keep walking throughout the day despite the things that you've done. If you can't swallow that lie anymore and you realize the truth isn't quite so palatable, then you either got to accept what's happened, readjust your worldview, or cash in your chips. Um, and that's what Diane does because she is incapable uh, of living in a world where she doesn't get what she wants. Um, be it love or be it success. Uh, and again, the lies we tell ourselves are, are really, you know, common trope in noir. Uh, and, and, you know, noir is just seeping through this film. I mean, Betty and Diane slash Camilla and Rita are simultaneously the protagonists, the femme fatale. I mean, they're every single noir trope rolled into two characters, uh, both simultaneously um, and, you know, uh, playing off one and the other. Uh, it's a really fascinating film. It really is. That was what struck me the most was this idea that Diane... Um, not only has she chosen to hurt the person she loves um, and, you know, just kind of Lynch playing with that idea that love might be more obsession than anything else. Um, and two, 
the idea that after we've done a terrible thing to someone we care about, we lie to ourselves to make it seem a little bit more okay. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Miss Alexandra Bohannon, what analysis bring you? Well, I'm just going to build off of uh, some of what Dalton talked about, especially the part where the in Freudian dream analysis, we have every single person in your dream is a, a sub person of yourself, a, p a facet of your own personality or persona. And I think that's a really, like everyone has been saying, that's a really important key to unlocking this film. It would be interesting to watch it again with that. Because by, I mean, by the time of the plot turning over and kind of getting a more insight into what's going on, I'm like, I kind of figured that it was a dream, but knowing that every single person is representative of um, who she is in her fever drug-induced dream, her wishful thinking. That's, I think that's a really important key. So I'm going to use that key to kind of unlock a little more analysis, especially in terms of uh, feminism in this film. I do find it interesting that in the first half of the film, you have basically all of, you have most of the people in power in the first half of the film are all men. And they're all men sub, um, subjecting other men to their own power. I'm thinking in terms of the director being told what to do. And then the the other director who doesn't seem to know what exactly is going on at any given point and the casting director who's, you know, too good for him and all of this stuff. And if all of those men are sub-facets of um, Betty slash Diane's personality... Well, she is just using what she sees in Hollywood every day as another extension of her own fever dream and her own wishful thinking. Um, so it's kind of interesting that all these men are actually just their feminist stand-ins because they're all being all extensions of her. She's well, think about it. If every no, single no, no, keep talking. You're blowing my mind. Yeah, if I mean, if every single man in that first part is a part of her then by her thrusting her power over all of these people that did her wrong including the director which could stand in for you know her failed attempts at a career or just her interpretation of someone like that you know that would be an interesting thing is if every part of the dream in the first half is her and all the men are her then who is the director? Because it would be, is would it be just a the facet of her um, star chasing personality, her her drive or whatever ambition, her ambition? Yeah, yeah. That that would probably be the best part. Is you know she's using her own yeah, power I'd outside like of the film industry the to kind of, of crush this and ambition. Adventures in the great wide open. And then when we open the blue box, 
which I know there's a lot of color symbolism throughout this whole movie. Um, you know, I guess you could blue is typically in the subject of like dreaming and you know sea of sleep and all of this stuff. And perhaps the unconscious, the or unconscious, the or something. Perhaps yes. I don't know because I don't know what the blue-haired lady is. Right, silencio and all that. Yeah. Um. So the fact that when she opens the blue blue box we return to what is quote reality, which is women, you know, at the beck and call of other people. And granted, she also interprets Camilla not having a lot of free will either. She interprets Camilla being manhandled into falling in love with Mr. Director man. She doesn't think mm-hmm. about Camilla leaving her. Cause that means that she is someone that can be left. Yeah. Go for it. Justin Thoreau with his on point unibrow in this film. On point, he yeah. his unibrow extended past his glasses. Yeah. I didn't know Justin Throw had that. I don't know if that's really him or not. I felt like he was doing uh, an anticipation of J.J. Abrams' persona. As he well. really looks like J.J. Abrams now. A you bit. know, and you know, twenty or ten years before J.J. Abrams has a huge career. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, unibrows, and so the fact that her current reality is one where pretty much all women are still under the thumbs of these major directors and industry leaders and men telling them what to do. Whereas, you know, getting out of the, get out of the car and all of this stuff. It's, it's a harsh reality, one that she can't really deal with. And of course there's the disputed ending of if she kills herself, I think she kills herself. I think I, so. I don't think there's any other way. No, I definitely do too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, after something so ghastly as that, I can't think of another solution to the end of the film. But one thing I was actually kind of curious about is that one actress that she's insisting in her fever dream that this one actress get ca- cast. And then in the back half, oh, the dream Camilla, not the real Camilla, the blonde. Yeah. She's called Camilla Rhodes in the dream. Oh, yeah, okay, so that really kind of, I didn't know exactly what was going on there, because you had her as the 50s, and we're insisting on her cast, and then she's, like, making out with the real Camilla at the end, so she's, like, her little love tryst when she's bored of dealing with the director man. I don't know. Well, I, I think, again, it's sort of a, a projection of anger, and this is a person who's taking my spot, right? And so I should be the person that's riding Camilla's coattails up, into Hollywood and this other person is getting that lift and I think that's part of her anger and that's why she casts her and you know the worst person is also Camilla who's also the best person and that's her struggling with what she thinks of Camilla everything is everything and nothing is everything and everything is nothing what exactly I I would agree with that (laughs) yeah this is this is interpretation inception I'd say The, the cowboy is God but he's also harsh judgment of the real world and also he's just a fucking cowboy he's the arbiter of her justice yeah there there's a reading of this film that he's a john and that um diane betty diane um becomes a prostitute at some point in the real world that's what i was thinking holy shit i actually was wondering because you had that woman at the very beginning with the hitman Uh and the woman i just couldn't like the sweater and no i said the same thing bro yeah i was just just like, like this is why is everyone being cast as a blonde in this movie and it's because they're all stand-ins for Betty Diane. slash Diane. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, very good. I would want to tag one thing onto your uh, analysis, Alex, and ask you a question, is that I do think it's sort of these, um, as Dalton talked about uh, last week with The Wire, these matrices of power, 
And uh, no, you talked about that with Orange is the New Black, correct? Me. Yes, I talked about that with Orange is the New Black and how, yeah, different it, refresher course listener, different, uh, you know, socioeconomic status, different uh, racial, ethnic backgrounds, different gender, different uh, sexual orientation, uh, etc. All of these things come together to determine how much power you're going to have in a given social situation. It's not any one thing. And, and it seems that um, Betty Diane is fighting against sort of patriarchal power. I think both she and Camilla both are. Mm-hmm. And Camilla somewhat succeeds in the battle, and she achieves power. She plays the game. She, and play, it's by, because she plays the game. Yeah, to call back to the wire, she plays the game. Exactly. And then um, Betty Diane in real life is somehow now under her thumb and on the outside, in the outskirts of power. You know, she has to get in the uh, limousine. She has to get out whenever she's told. She goes to these parties that she doesn't want to be at mm-hmm. and all these sort of things. And, and Camilla's character, I think, becomes sort of a masculine character. Oh, I would agree. You know, and, and so she just, in, instead of, you know, fighting free of patriarchy, she just re, um, you know, she renames power and uh, just takes the mantle of masculinity. I mean, it, it, again, she she uh, uh, to, to give a Freudian ring, she takes the phallus herself. Oh, yeah. I mean, she buys back into, you know, the, the typical heteronormative societal viewpoint of, you know, she's in this. In the, the one scene I always think of is they're in the car and the director's like, I'm going to teach you how to kiss, baby. And. You know, it's like this very 50s kind of dated scene. So it definitely shows it's like this is how, you know, this was the norm back then. So that's going to be the norm now. And I'm going to show you how a real man will kiss you, baby. And, you know, and then it just builds from there. And how Camilla is like, well, I guess I have to buy in if I ever want to act in Hollywood again. And she does. Which she does to the actress who plays the dream Camilla, you know, in that dinner party scene. And so she does almost exactly what Adam does to her in the dream yep. to this other girl. Gosh, this is good. And so it's yeah, a good movie, man. I mean, it really is an interesting um, reflection on power. Now, in my analysis, um, I, I, there's a lot of great things you can do to talk about this movie. I do want to talk about just one thing about the interpretation of meaning because David Lynch actually did give something of an explanation. In that he the clues the clues and I want to read the clues because they are at times helpful and at times completely not arbitrary. So. I hope I heard that they're about as helpful as having a jigsaw puzzle with like half the pieces missing. Well, something like that. Well, <laughs> all right. How, how about this? This will be fun. Dustin, you read them. Me and Alex will respond in what in terms of whether or not we find them helpful. All right. There okay. are ten. Number one. Pay particular attention in the beginning of the film. At least two clues are revealed before the credits. Absolutely. Yes. But, yeah, uh, knowing that before you watch the movie, you have no idea. Yeah. Uh, notice the appearances of the red lampshade. Not a f- – no, not I don't a even bit. know where the red lampshade it is. It shows up twice, once next to an ashtray of American spirits, and then once right at the end of the film. In Diane's apartment. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you – Yeah, when Diane's on, on the phone. And, it, yeah, it's absolutely useless as far as I can tell. Can you hear the title of the film that Adam Kesher is auditioning actresses for? Is it mentioned again? Yes, and it seems relevant. Yes, but it's a Sylvia North story. I have no idea. As far as I can tell, it's just to remind you that uh, not only was did Diane get the shaft, not even in her wildest fantasy can she not get the shaft. If that makes sense. Yeah, I I didn't pick up because she that nails one. the audition, and then that's the one that Camille Rhodes gets the part for. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Number four, an accident is a terrible event. Hyphen. Notice the location of the accident. Mulholland Drive. Drive. That movie title? Uh, yeah, I don't really know. That, I what... feel like there has to be another bit to that clue. Exactly. That it's not that obvious. Who gives a key? Oh, wait. 
I'm sorry. It is very relevant because the accident happens right at the shortcut. Right. That's yeah. what's relevant. Yeah. Yeah, and that that's 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 a train wreck of uh, of Diane's life. Exactly. That moment when she finds out Camilla's going to marry Adam, and yeah, yeah. it's all bad. Um, number five. Who gives a key and why? The guy gives the key to her when the hit has been carried out, and then there's the other blue key in the. Purse. I think they just find it though, don't they? And Coco gives a apartment room key to Diane. Yeah. But well, I don't know. Exactly. Yeah, that means nothing to me, though. Yes, I mean, I know what he's talking about, but I don't see why it's relevant. Number six. Notice the robe, the ashtray, the ashtray, excuse me, and the coffee cup. Absolutely useless. She does wear the robe for some reason most of the time when she's at home and then likes to, like, like sleep naked, I guess. I, I don't know. It's sort of a red velvet lo- robe, and there is a very prominent blue velvet robe in David Lynch's blue velvet. That's a good point. But, yeah. Seems useless. Yeah, Continue. Not not very helpful. Uh, number seven. What is felt, realized, and gathered at the Club Silencio? Nothing. Or uh, everything. That everything is pre-recorded and fabricated uh, actually I'm, I'm kidding uh Take. i looked i looked over to dustin um and said people are disposable mm-hmm. and that was the first thing i thought during that club silencio thing which is actually quote kind of made me think about what we do to the people we love because if people are disposable then love's a sham and we're just gonna hurt everyone yeah i just thought about oh this is so if this is a tape it's all fictional and this is the fictional part of the movie Ooh, interesting well in a fabricated reality the uh the players who um perform the fabrication um are unnecessary as you said yeah because i mean the t- recording kept happening when the lady passed out on stage and man that was beautiful Ooh. yeah the, that 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 Most rendition of, of crying by rory orbison uh is, is Number eight, um, did talent alone help Camilla? No. Having a desirable, um, well, she was desired by a director who was a man, and she definitely used that yeah, to she, her advantage. She definitely capitalized on her assets and uh, did there what needed go. to be done. Uh, number <laughs> next, uh, note the occurrence uh, occurrences surrounding the man behind Winkies. Well, at the beginning. How could, how could you not notice? <laughs> the end. And that one is very helpful, um, I think so, because it just reminds you that at that 
I mean, it's hard not to notice it, and it's hard not to think it's important, but it's just reminding you that, like, yes, it is very important. Yeah, I know it's important, but, I mean, not sure what it means in terms of the movie. Expression of human evil, maybe. I yeah, know. I think it's Diane's monstrous self, and she can't confront it. I, I, Was that number 10? No, that's number that's number 9. Okay, and finally. And number last. Uh, where is Aunt Ruth? Ontario. Canada. Dead. Maybe. Which is the same as being in Ontario? I don't know. I, Does I don't Lynch know. hate Canadians? So everything fictional so, comes from Canada. So thanks, David? Maybe? I, I don't know. I don't think so. So I will give you some other clues that are in the film that might help break it open, at least as far as looking at it as a postmodernist slash modernist uh, film. Uh, one of the modernist bits that I want to address is not a reference to other films, but I think is crucially and vitally important, is that when uh, Diane discovers Rita in the shower, it's that, uh, that uh, broken glass um, style uh, glass shower, and it fragments the, uh, the image of, uh, of uh, Rita's uh, profile. And I think it's, again, this fractured self, and I think it is a clue to what we're going to be experiencing in the film, and I, I mm-hmm. find that particularly brilliant. But um, what I want to say now is in terms of um, references to other films, specifically other films noir, and uh, the conversation this is having, obviously, the main conversations with Sunset Boulevard, um, the film begins on Mulholland Drive, and she goes down the hill uh, to Sunset Boulevard, uh, where she hides out and ends up invading Aunt Ruth's apartment and meeting uh, Betty and uh, Sunset Boulevard, of course, is another poison Valentine to Hollywood. How Hollywood uh, chews up talent and spits them back out, and that talent's not all that important of a thing, and you know, important to persons. And of course, uh, there is in Sunset Boulevard uh, the Norma Desmond character who um, holds William Holden um, under her thumb, and uh, you know, sort of makes him a kept man. And that's sort of the desire that, uh, you know, uh, Diane wants of uh, Camilla is that she would do that for her. And so in, in, in a reversal that's sort of interesting, we have uh, Betty, who is Diane, doing the same thing for Rita and making her sort of a kept woman, mm-hmm. um, reversing that. And, of course, then just the, 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 the general Hollywood narrative. And then there's Coco's appearance, which is very much a 1920s uh, classic uh, silent film star, which I think calls to mind Gloria Swanson uh, from Sunset Boulevard. Absolutely. So those ideas are, are definitely uh, working in play. And, of course, it's also giving this idea of geography that's, that Mulholland Drive is somehow above Sunset Boulevard, looking down upon it. And so it is, again, that postmodern um, sort of objectivism, I mean subjectivism, where you're on the outside looking in, but, of course, you're also involving yourself by participating in the story in any way. And so I, I think somehow that geography plays in uh, to a large extent. Also, when um, Betty begins to become her own personal private investigator, her Nancy Drew moments uh, throughout uh, the film, uh, the, the first scene where she begins to start trying to solve the crime, you see her laying on the couch with her hands behind her head. She's a right? terrible detective. I just want to point that out. She is. And her elbow sticking up, which looks just like the, uh, the young Charlie character in Alfred Hitchcock's Shadow of a Doubt. That's how she's introduced. Mm. And she's looking for things. She's thinking about things. And there's this sort of intuition that she has about her uncle Charlie that she wants to invite down to Santa Clara. Uh, where all of the uh, events take place. And of course, he's something of a lady killer um, in every sense of the word. And so <laughs> that is playing uh, mightily throughout the film. And then, of course, the giving and the receiving of keys and the focus on keys um, cannot make one help but uh, recognize uh, the influence of Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious and its emphasis 
on uh, the giving and receiving and the placement of a, of a key uh, and solving things. And finally, um, just going back to the Rita character herself, she she is an amnesiac. She doesn't actually know her name. And the name she picks is based on seeing a Gilda poster uh, starring uh, the Latina actress Rita Hayworth, whose hair was dyed red, mm-hmm. and then later was dyed uh, blonde by Orson Welles for The Lady from Shanghai, which was considered a monstrous act and uh, brought about uh, great, great um, uh, consternation, criticism, and uh, just general hatred from the critical community. Because why would you do that to Rita Hayworth? And uh, that he would force an image upon her, that he would make her over in this way, uh, and, 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 and somehow challenge uh, the persona of Rita Hayworth. And again, um, this sort of Latin, Latina actress. This already um, created persona. And so, you know, Rita Hayworth is Margarita Hayworth, and so that's where the Rita comes from. Laura Haring, by the way, listener, is also a Hispanic. She is uh, of Mexican descent. Mm -hmm. And and then finally, the whole idea of being made over. We see uh, Betty wearing a a very close analog to the gray suit that Kim Novak wears in Vertigo, which is a film in which uh, Jimmy Stewart's obsession causes uh, her to be remade when she's later uh, the Madeline character. Well, no, rather, she's the Judy character. First she's Madeline, then she's Judy, just like... Uh, Mulholland Drive, mm-hmm. where the, the character has two different names, and uh, makes her over so that she would look just the way he would want her to look. And of course, once that finally happens and uh, the romance is consummated, just like in Vertigo, love is immediately lost. In this case, the dream falls apart and breaks apart and uh, can no longer go on. And so I think perhaps these conversations with these great classic films noir um, kind of helps break open the film and help um, deepen understanding therein. But I, I thank you very much, uh, dear co-hosts, uh, for your analysis. You know, interview, I would say, it was good. Really good. A little forced, maybe, yet humanistic. <laughs> <laughs> that director, I, I don't think he knew his uh, his anything in that scene. <laughs> I could seriously watch. I, I just want to take a note as as we close out our reviews and our analysis and, and point out how amazing Naomi Watts is in this movie. She's so good. I mean. She blows that out of the water. You can see this is her breakout performance. I mean, it is absolutely astonishingly good. It takes a lot of skill to, one, act badly, two, turn on acting well and then go back to acting badly and have everyone point out how great your acting was. And then three, act in a very, you know, modern, humanistic, realistic sort of fashion that we expect from modern filmmaking. I think that's part of what is so distressing about the first part of this film is it's a type of acting that isn't done anymore. And if it's, it's soap done, acting. it's mocked. Exactly. It's soap opera acting precisely. Or, or, or like, honestly, you know what it reminds me more of? It's like a Saturday morning children's show. Yeah, she she she's like uh, she's like Steve from mm-hmm. Blues Clues or you know somebody like that. I mean, it's just hilarious. Like, oh, okay, where is it? Is it behind me? I don't know. That 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 delivery. Of, okay, Irene. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But man, I mean, she's just amazing. I could seriously watch the the audition scene probably a hundred times and find something fascinating and interesting about her performance every time. And again, the guy she's playing with does the same. It's really kind of cool to watch him do the same thing and turn on the good acting. Mm-hmm. I mean, the acting in this is really phenomenal. Isn't he famous? I think he's a soap opera, a soap opera actor. Yeah, he also is in uh, Gus Van Sant's remake of Psycho. He is the uh, the 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 jerk facey uh, guy who's making the the property um, purchase and leaves oh. all the cash. Go figure. So you know, and yeah, he, he does a weird turn also because he's you know, baby, tell tell daddy where it hurts. 
and, and yeah. then you're like, oh my goodness, this is gonna be bad. Yeah. And then it's amazing. Turns it on. And, yeah. and again, he you kind of watch his face, and that's this is good subtle acting too. Uh, just picking up off of her performance and like watching his face realize that this is good acting, and then turning on the good acting. I tell you what, I think the thesis for this movie is Naomi Watts and that audition saying you're playing a very dangerous game. Mm, mm-hmm. Well, again, thank you very much. Uh, I guess now we can only have a verdict where we must uh, either relegate this to the trash or um, elevate it to the shelf and then recommend our else's or instead's. I ask you first, Miss Alexander Bohannon, what say you? I'd say shelf it. I mean, it's it's a good movie. It's a good movie after I've watched it and had 24 to 48 hours to think about it and um, really kind of crack it open. Of course, having other people that have talked about it and hearing the other analysis makes me want to go back and watch it. I do, I do need a rest period from it. I'm not going to go back and watch it like this afternoon or it's anything. It's not a back-to-back. Uh, no, but it is. I think it's worth your time. You just have to you have to watch it that first time, and then it's always going to be worth your time. Um, the first time is the hardest, I guess, is the thing. Um, other movies that could... <laughs> okay, Phrasing. you could take it that way if you want. Um, other movies that could Phrasing. pair well with this. Obviously, any selection of um, Dustin's aforementioned film noir um, clues that he sprinkled throughout, so you can give those a look. And I'd also encourage... I don't know, maybe some Fight Club, just because the last fifth of the movie and the whole movie of Fight Club, I think, are really similar in tone. Just the bleakness, the despair, and then, of course, the mind-boggling you know, reveals of what is real and what is not um, at the end there. I mean, also, I mean, Fight Club's original uh, storyline, you know, he ends up killing himself successfully, Incorrect. No, I thought he. I no. thought the original. No. I thought the book that he actually nope. kills himself. I've I have read the book because that's how much I like the movie. No, well, yeah. He doesn't. Yeah. No, he 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 doesn't succeed in killing himself either time. He goes to the hospital. He, well, he shooting kills himself. One, he kills one of the selves. He he kills Tyler both times. This is a fifteen-year-old movie. A listener, get over it. But no, not neither time is he successful in killing himself. I'm sorry to burst your bubble. What? Someone? Okay. Somebody I, lied to you. Someone lied to me. Or someone's an idiot and wanted to sound smart. Yeah. Oh. If you're listening to this and you told Alex that, you should be ashamed of yourself. I think it was an ex-boyfriend. Well, well, fuck him. Figuratively. Anyway, that that's all for me. Well, thank you very much, Miss Bohan and Mr. Dalton Stewart. Shelf or trash, else or instead? Uh, man, I'm going to say shelf. I think this is absolutely essential film viewing. Uh, I think if you were... Now, again, this is not for the, the amateur film you know enjoyer. This is for hardcore film buffs only. Uh, because you're not going to like this if you don't love movies. I mean, you're, you know, if you go to the theater twice a year, you're going to hate this movie. Um, but if you know, if you're like us and are as obsessed with film as we are and, you know, listen, if you're listening to a movie podcast, you will probably like, you're probably in. Yeah. Uh, it's again, it's opaque. Uh, if you need help from us, feel free to message us on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I think it's absolutely essential film viewing for film lovers. Um, else I'm going to say, and again, I, it's impossible not to think about it while watching this, and I'm sure Dustin will mention it again, but Sunset Boulevard, uh, I mean, it is an absolute must pair with this. Um, and, and again, a great film noir, um, but more importantly, a great film noir about uh, Hollywood being a shithole. Mm-hmm. Um, and man, I really like that movie. That's a good movie. Whew. Um, 
a little bit more recent pick. I'm gonna from a about the same time as Sunset Bull or not Sunset Boulevard. Uh, from about the same time as Mulholland Drive. Um, Memento from mm, Chris Nolan. Good call. I mean, it's about what within a year of each other, somewhere in there. Uh, around then, yeah. I think I'd Memento's say. 2000. I think Sun uh, Mulholland's Mulholland's 01 for sure. I don't, I'm not sure okay. what Memento. I'm pretty is. sure Memento's uh, 2000. Um, again, they're both films, and Memento's much easier to decipher. Uh, but they're both films that you have no idea what's going on until you know exactly what's going on. Um, and they're both um, kind of postmodernistic looks at the film noir genre. So I, I think Sunset and uh, Memento are great pairings with this. Um, actually, that would make a hell of a hell of a triple bill. Yeah, I was actually thinking Nolan, but I having not seen Memento and only seeing Inception, I don't know if Inception really would go with this. Nah, I don't think so. You need to watch Memento. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. We have an episode over it. Wait, do we? Yes, no, we, yeah, do. we do. That's right. First season, back when we were the Film Society. Um, my um, verdict, of course, it's already been on my shelf. It's been on my shelf for some time. Um, I love me some David Lynch in general, and so there's lots of great auteurist things that could be said about this film and other films in his filmography, which we did not say today, and it's all present. And so, uh, yes, definitely, definitely shelf uh, for me. Uh, my else's, I'm going to recommend Louis Bunuel's um, That Obscure Object of Desire, which also features um, this odd Frisian uh, in an actress um, who is not um, playing two different characters in a real and real dream world, but rather they just choose two different actresses to uh, play uh, the same character, and they just switch for kicks and grins. And uh, and it, it is all about obsession, and it's all about um, you know desire and the fulfillment of desire and uh, trying to, to find uh, what you're looking for. And then um, in that same vein, I'm going to recommend Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut, which I think mm. is... A, That's is a, on my... Uh to watch list. I think it's it's a, it's a, a fine pair. It's definitely more linear and it's definitely a much easier to follow narrative. Um, but it's um, definitely uh, something along the lines. And, and and then just to go, we've got it French and we've got it sort of mainline or mainstream. Uh, I want to say just to keep it weird and go a little deeper down that sort of surrealist uh, rabbit hole um, with Alice and, uh, and her waistcoated rabbit, um, you should probably take a look at the Brothers Quay Piano Tuner of Earthquakes, occasionally streaming on Netflix. Um, it's a uh, really a lot of stop motion animation in the film, and it is an opaque narrative, again, about obsession and desire. It's very gothic, um, very, very beautiful to look at. And uh, it's definitely um, glacially paced. So um, it's... Oh, those are my favorite. It, it doesn't move fast, uh, but it is beautiful, and it really, truly is brilliant. But it's one of those things till, oh, once I've watched it all now, I know what's going on. And uh, it's, it's really pretty fantastic. And anything from the Brothers Quay, uh, their shorts uh, that are stop-motion animated, or Jan Schwenkmeyer, his animated shorts um, from Czechoslovakia, those would all be uh, recommends uh, from me. But let's move. So now as we've concluded those uh, bits of verdict gavel um, wrapping upon the table about what our opinions are on Mulholland Drive, we give the dear listener opportunity to participate in the conversation. And I do want to remind everybody, uh, this is the week of Ratings Palooza. By all means, you don't necessarily have to give a written review. Uh, a starred rating from one to five stars is, of course, helpful, but it's even more helpful when there's actual words being written, even if it's just a word being written, if you don't want to say a whole lot of just things. Cool. 
I, I, I get that. Or and shit, whatever. Yeah, whatever that range is, that's a one to five star range, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> and and so uh, whatever you want to do or can do uh, for that, that's very, very helpful to us. Again, we're just trying to get the message out there. Here we are, 100 episodes in, and uh, we would just uh, it's really like exciting. keep the conversation going. I never thought we'd make it past episode 10, to be quite honest. Never in a million years. I, I could not have fathomed we would go 100 episodes. I'm so happy to be here. Ar- Arthur, you want to you wanna step out from behind the plexiglass and, and say something real quick since you've been here from the very beginning? Who would have thought that we would make it this far? It's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. I got to uh, get to see movies that I didn't think I'd have time to watch, and mm-hmm. so that's been fun uh, being able to push myself to watch those movies and push myself to think more and engage with the films more, which has also been uh, very nice. And so it's, it's been a blast with you guys. And so thank you for having me on the journey. Thanks, man. Well, awesome, and welcome, of course, Alex, you know, our, our newly minted uh, co-host, the fourth 30, horse woman 30, of the apocalypse. It's about 20. I looked at the uh, the, okay. the pod bean, and it's, it's I actually, I think it's exactly 20, because so Aliens was at 80, so. You've been with us for as much as a Mulholland Drive makes sense. Yes. <laughs> right, yes. Out of, right out of fifth. <laughs> uh, I, I'm so happy, listener, and like Arthur said, I, I think the show pushes us all, and I if we do anything other than entertain you, listener, I hope it's that we push you to think about movies more than you would otherwise, more critically, uh, with, with more tin towards analysis. And I hope it changes your mind about film criticism. I know there's a lot of uh, aspiring filmmakers and even some film fans who, who don't really understand the purpose of criticism because they think of product reviews, uh, which I don't think really have much purpose uh, in, in film. Uh, hopefully this has opened your eyes to the importance of, of talking and writing about film. Because um, I think it's something that's invaluable. I think it's always important for us to be sharing and discussing art. Um, so go watch a fucking movie. And thanks for listening to this stupid show that we've been doing for 100 episodes now. I'm so happy you're here. Very, very good times. Well, um, let's move on and talk about other ways that that conversation can take place via the magical means that we all know as social media. Miss Alexandra Pohannon, do you know anything about a means by which and any feedback from that means? You can find us on the book face at Good Trash Genre Cast. And um, I let's look at the any feedback. We have a couple of links from a certain Brigham Cole. He shared two things. Uh, November 24th, he said, Christoph Waltz is tipped to play the new Blofeld in the James Bond movie. Yes. That's exciting news. And yes. um, the next day, he said he also shared 14 movie special effects you wouldn't believe weren't CGI from Cracked. And the cover photo, since Dalton doesn't have a book face, is Alien. So you should might read this article. I probably will. Yeah. Thank you so much, Brigham Cole. And um, if you guys want to talk to us, we'll totally read anything you post on our wall on air. If you'd like to give us some well wishes for episode 100, that'd be fantastic as well, since it is as close to an anniversary as um, anything that we're going to have uh, on the show. Uh, Mr. Dalton Stewart, do you anything else about magical means of social media? You know, I, I had a dream uh, about this place. Well, it's the second one I've had, but they're both the same. They start out that that I'm here with my cell phone, and it's not day or night. It's like you know, kind of half night, you know. But but it looks just like this, except for the light. And uh, I'm scared, like like I can't tell you. Of all people, you, Dustin, you're standing right over there by by that counter. You're in both dreams, and, and you're scared too. And I get even more frightened when I I see how frightened you are, and then I realize that it, I realize what it is. There's 
There's an app in back of this place. This app, it's the one that's doing it. I can see the app through the wall. I can see its face. I hope that I never see that face ever outside of a dream. Ladies and gentlemen, that app is Twitter, and you can find the Good Trash Genre Cast on Twitter at good underscore trash. Any feedback coming in from the Twitzy Twitter? Uh, a bit, yeah. Um, Caleb Masters uh, tweeted us, and I, I don't know, this was floating around on the internet, um, but J.J. Uh, Abrams wrote a little card out, uh, an announcement of the uh, teaser for something we'll talk about later, and it's a really kind of cute little card. Uh, and I don't know if it was distributed to theaters or, or, or film critics, uh, but but Caleb tweeted that uh, at us and made probably me real just happy. Instagram. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure, but it's like a little handwritten note. Uh, I thought it was real cute. Uh, lots of retweets and favorites uh, from the likes of uh, Shane Arrington, who who's a usual. Uh, also, Austin Lucari, who is uh, a friend of Caleb Masters. I, I appeared with him on the the cast Beyond the Wall that Caleb Masters does over uh, Game of Thrones. Um, and probably the thing that made me the most happy uh, was we got favorited. Uh, I tweeted the link to our, our episode 99, which is our, our show over the wire, uh, and it got retweeted by Baltimore Reddit. The the Baltimore News, it's, it's a Reddit account dedicated to Baltimore News, which just made me really happy. I just thought it was funny. That is exciting. That's adorable. But yeah, no, that's, that's about all the feedback we have coming in. Uh, but again, just want to remind you, listener, this is the week to do it if you haven't already. Um, before the next episode drops, please, hopefully you've already written it because we wanted it between 99 and 100, but it's not too late. Write those iTunes reviews. Please, please, please. Well, dear listener, the daylight is quickly slipping off into half night, so I think we probably better play the game. Time to play the game. Time to play the game! <laughs> This week's game is our favorite WTH moments uh, from the good trash. That's right. Favorite WTH moments from the history of the good trash genre cast. What the hell moments when you're too big of a pansy to say what the fuck. Probably don't call David Lynch for help. <laughs> that's, that's a fair point. Although he is sort of squeamish about swearing. Is he? That's true. Yeah. That's true. Everybody that swears in his movies is usually a, a not nice person. Yeah, well, now he's he's squeamish about swearing himself. He will do it, but there's a there's a whole little uh, strange Puritan thread throughout him where really? sometimes he won't say the thing. Well, I'm just and then sometimes he does, and it's sort of hilarious. I'm just thinking about his famous foul mouth characters from uh, you know Blue Velvet and Wild at Heart, and I mean they're you know absolutely heinous people. Well, he wrote Frank's dialogue, but he wouldn't say it in Blue Velvet. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, yes, these are our favorite moments where we were watching something for Good Trash, and we're just like, what is going on? What, what is happening right now? And uh, so that is the game. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what are your selections? Oh, my God. I have a lot. Um, mostly uh, Hopefully at the don't ha- use mine. I probably won't. Uh, a lot of these are from bef- – actually, all of these are, are from before your tenure, Alex. Perfect. Uh, some of these are, are things that happened in watching films for the show, and some of them are actually things that happened in, during recording an episode. Um, the first one, uh, and listener, you can actually listen to this. Probably the finest WTF, WTH moment in the history of our show. It is me watching episode three of Twin Peaks with Dustin. Um, <laughs> go go way back to our first TV marathon last September. Uh, it's a bonus episode right there. I'd say probably right around episode 30 or 40, somewhere in there. I don't honestly know. 
Um, man, I lost my mind uh, in the last 10 minutes of that. Absolutely lost my mind. Once again, courtesy to Mr. Lynch. Um, uh, it's absolutely Next, probably the most blown away I've ever been in the history of the show uh, is from analyses done by Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mm. One of them being his uh, analysis of, of Die Hard as a, a mirror for the, the rituals behind Yom Kippur. Uh, what is this? Yep, one of our very <laughs> early episodes. Uh, our first December that we were recording, we did Christmas movies because uh, there's only two good ones, Die Hard and Gremlins, and then we also did the Hebrew Hammer, which is not very good. Um, and, and Arthur gave a reading of Die Hard that I will never forget. Uh, and also a couple of weeks or earlier this year, I should say, it's been several months now, Arthur gave a reading of Jurassic Park uh, as a metaphor for the Hollywood machine. That absolutely blew me away. Um Secondly, um, or not secondly, thirdly, uh, just watching Barbarian Sound Studio, uh, which I like a lot. I like that movie, movie a whole bunch, but the entire time I was like, what the shit am I watching? But it was always good. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. A, lot of, a lot of what the hell movies, it takes a long time to decide whether or not you like it. I was in from go with Barbarian, and I don't know why, but there was just something about it that totally drew me in. Finally, um, Listener, I have never been more shocked in the history of this podcast than when I realized Dustin did not like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, well. I, I, you know, I didn't expect him to love it, but for him to just be so apathetic towards it really was quite shocking to me. I, I would not have, I would not have guessed that. I can't say I hate it. It's just meh. Exactly. And I expected him to love it, or at the very least, really feel strongly about it, but for him to be so apathetic just totally blew me away. I absolutely shocked <laughs> so those are those are my all-time wth wtf moments uh, in the history of doing this show i'm sorry to be so disappointing to you mr dalton stewart uh, miss alexandra bohannon uh, what are your favorite moments well i'd say that my probably the apex of my wtf moments and the show was the whole movie of lords of salem that movie is a wtf moment if you ever have watched one most definitely 90 minutes of them yes yes um especially what is it with the last fifth being so vital to the first half of the movie but that's when most of the crazy happens i would say yeah that would be an interesting an intense and awful double feature Mulholland Drive and Lords of Salem. Oh my word. <laughs> That's maybe the double feature no. that hates you. No. <laughs> Don't do it. No. Step away from the Blu-ray player. Silencio. <laughs> Don't do it. Yeah. Um, that if would... you're thinking about going into that house... Don't. Yeah, I mean, whereas Mulholland Drive was a good movie, Lords of Salem was not as good movie. So that is, um, there were lots of WTF moments in that. And of course, in watching all of Shocktober, my co-host would mention films in, you know, most of them horror movies that are in their queue or what they've been watching or their else's or instead's. And I would look them up on IMDb, and I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe this exists. Like, Antichrist. I read the whole synopsis for Antichrist, and I was terrified. And that was – and then I started um, – what was the other one? It was a game. Someone recommended it as a pairing with your next. And it's meta. It's a film. Cabin in the Thir- Woods? Thurkelston recommended it. It's probably Cabin in the Woods. It wasn't Cabin in the Woods. They're – Two guys break into a house. Oh, they have a funny family. games. Funny, funny games. games. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, read the synopsis for funny games, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is also a movie. You might actually like that one. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I think you'd like. I think that one's something you could handle, Alex. Okay. I, I think it would blow your mind in a good yes, way. Yes, I think it would too. And then a not good, a good trash of previous um, era pick that I watched with uh, Dalton was Pontypool. I love that movie. That's probably one of my favorite movies I've watched this year. Um, that was really good. And then I had a WTF moment for the podcast, but I guess just a a good moment in general was that whenever I guess my reaction of WTF, whenever they invited me back to be a, a full-time hostie and uh, <laughs> I just can't believe I'm here with these guys and you guys are so nice and oh, I love you guys a lot. Well, we're glad to have you on board. Um, some of my favorite um, moments, uh, cinematic moments, uh, for the sake of the show, um, one of the biggest ones um, made me so angry. Just wanted to throw a chair. Uh, was the moment where I did my Netflix search for Bad Boys Two, and I've hated myself ever since. <laughs> and, was uh, that because of Hot Fuzz? No, no, we Our, we we, uh, we did big summer movies or something like that, or action movies. I can't remember what the the marathon was, but Arthur. It might have just been a host pick, uh, but Arthur. Definitely picked this movie. He picked Bad Boys 2, either for a marathon or just for his own amusement. And <laughs> amusement, there's definitely. no turning back. Uh, yeah, and I, I have yet to forgive him. What has been seen cannot be unseen. That is correct, sir. Um, also, um, with regard to Mr. Gordon, I guess I'll say something positive now towards him. It, it is early, early on, season one, uh, back our very first uh, Halloween marathon, we did a uh, readings of Hellraiser, and he talked about how um, the sadomasochism of the film is actually um, a, a theory of spectra- spe- spectatorship. Uh, when it comes to horror film, that you're at both times a sadist uh, watching the tortured uh, per- persons on screen and a masochist as you torture yourself uh, with those sensations of fear. See, that's why I don't like horror movies most of the time. So there you go. But um, that that reading, though, especially um, you know, in lieu of Hellraiser and just the uh, just another moment when which my mind was blown and I did not know uh, what was happening. Uh, in a moment, it was in my. In, this is maybe surprising. My first watch of the thing was for this move, was for this podcast, and uh, when that dog's face split like a. Flower, I was thinking the dog's face too. <laughs> that that was not what I thought was going to happen, and uh, yeah, it was pretty crazy, and I lost my mind uh, quite briefly there uh, watching that film. But those are some of my um, just uh, amazed and mind blowing moments. Uh, from uh, the Good Trash genre cast. Uh, let's move on, though, as our gameplay has run quite long enough. We'd love to hear your uh, thoughts, dear listener. I, I would be delighted to hear if the listeners had any picks for this game. The, the moments listening to the show or watching the movie because we did it for the show that just absolutely blew their gourd. Yeah, or just how furious they are with us by what we thought of a yeah. movie or didn't think of a movie, and, and round and round we go. Uh, so we'd love to hear all of that good stuff uh, from you through those magical means of social media that we've already mentioned. But now I need to find out, is my crew all fired up? And uh, what are we fired up about this week in pop culture? Miss Alexandra Bohannon, are you fired up? Yo! I am not really fired up. There's not a whole lot of things going on in my uh, corner of the world besides finals and papers. So I'm glad for this brief reprise um, doing something fun like this podcast. But I can't can't really be on fire for much right now. My, (laughs) My burners are all occupied. 
Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Ms. Bohannon. That is totally fine and satisfactory. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what say you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm pretty fired up. Um, guys, um, I'm really fired up. Uh, I want to talk about something first. But that Just because it's going to be hard to come back down. Um, so we talked about Generation Kill last week uh, in reference to The Wire, and I, I mentioned that it was similar to The Wire. I had forgotten that it's actually created by David Simon and Ed Burns, who uh, co-wrote and uh, co-created The Wire together. Um, so if you like The Wire, you'll definitely like Generation Kill, um, which is, again, uh, as a reminder, a miniseries from HBO about uh, following the first recon marines as they invade Iraq in 2003, uh, based on the book by a, a journalist from Rolling Stone who is embedded with them, and he's also one of the co-creators and co-writers of the series. Um, but, man, it's really good. I watched it in about two days. It's, it's seven episodes. I'd forgotten how much I liked it. Um, and I was really glad to revisit it and couldn't believe that I had forgotten that it was from the creators of The Wire. Um, but guys, uh, this week, I'm excited about Star Wars. <laughs> you probably know this already. Aren't we all? Yeah, you already know this already because you're on the internet. If you know what a podcast is, you probably know what Star Wars is. Mother of God, sweet Holy Mary, the Force Awakens teaser trailer is out. And... I haven't even been cautiously optimistic, listener. Um, I've been excited that there's going to be more Star Wars just because I like Star Wars. Even if it ends up blowing, I'll be happy there's more Star Wars in my life. I'm happy to say that that trailer looks real good. Mm -hmm. Most importantly, it looks like Star Wars. Um, Nitpick all you want about how much they chose to reveal or... You know the look of things. Although I think all of the uh, you know the desi- design aesthetics that we got to see in the trailer are pretty cool. It looks and feels like a Star Wars trailer, um, and I think that's about the most we could ask for at this point is seeing something and knowing that it's going to look like Star Wars. I know a lot of people were concerned about J.J. Abrams switching over to Star Wars from Star Trek, and you know Star Wars and Star Trek are not the same thing. Um, but Abrams was is and was a lifelong Star Wars fan. He wasn't a Trek fan, so he had to figure out how to make something look like Trek. He didn't have to figure out how to make something look like Star Wars. He knew what it's supposed to look like, and I think he's done a damn good job from the you know 88 seconds we've seen. I'm really excited. Um, a, a bit of an addendum to that, uh, I also started watching, basically because I'm so excited about new Star Wars, I started watching the, uh, I think it's, it's on a Disney's cartoon channel, I guess. I don't know. Uh, Star Wars Rebels which I, I can best describe as Firefly Babies. Mm, okay. Uh, yeah, it's Firefly for Children. That sounds pretty cool, it's actually. It's really good. It's Star War- It's Firefly for Children set in the Star Wars universe. Um, I'm not even kidding you. Most characters have a Firefly analog of some kind or another, uh, be it a combo character or otherwise. I mean, there's one character that is just Jane, mm. top to bottom. Nice. It is Jane, and it's the guy that uh, is famous uh, for voicing Wolverine and Spike and Cowboy Bebop, Steve Bloom, uh, who's just done... Gobs and gobs and gobs and gobs of voice work. There's a lot of prolific voice actors. Freddie Prince Jr. Uh, is one of the leads, so I've taken to calling him Freddie Prince Jedi. Uh, but that's irrelevant. It's a good show. You should check it out. I, I like it a lot. I'm like three episodes in. Um, and it's just something to tie me over until I get more real Star Wars. Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton I am fired up about uh, another announcement from Mr. David Lynch. I don't know if you guys are aware of this or not. You know, we know the Twin Peaks series is coming out, but he's also working on a feature film script. Oh, cool. Uh, untitled at this point, but yay. 
So more of this uh, goodness that we've experienced so far today is coming. So I've been holding on to that. And then I have a very, very kind of personal but also sort of pop-culturally fired-up-ish thing to do. Uh, I'm under yet another book chapter contract to write a book chapter uh, about uh, two Jean-Luc Godard films, um, one called Detective in, in, in French, which means detective. and uh, No shit. <laughs> and Hellas pour moi, which means uh, woe is me. Uh, and and what's, is this book going to be just about Godard? It's going to be just about Godard and uh, literary influences. Cool. And so, so is each chapter just uh, about a film that he did? A film and a book. Okay. And so you can write a film and a book chapter and a film and a book chapter. Cool. And so um, I got requested to do that. There was an extension on it. Apparently. Is this going to be from Scarecrow Press as it well? It is not. It's going to be from Caboose. Okay. Which, well, huh? It's Dr. Hayes, yeah. they giving you a big pile of money? No. Of course not. No. Well, hey, that's awesome, man. So, yeah, I'm excited. And you I, get to I, be credited as Dustin Sells, M.A. Right. When, oh, M.A., M.A., because I am your mama. Mama. Uh, so, uh, mama. It's exciting stuff <laughs> and, and whatnot, and I've got a uh, order of a handful of Godard movies coming in my mail now, and that kind of makes me happy. So excited! Hooray about. for screeners! I know. Well, no, they're not screeners. Well, you, free movies. I bought them. Oh, I thought Sadness. they were sending them to you. No, no, I just had to buy them. Oh, well, but fuck, never mind, never mind, then forget no, no, everything her, I've said. Hooray There's for no having, perks for being an author. Hooray for excuses to buy movies. Yeah, there you go. And so that makes me uh, very, very happy, and it also makes me very, very happy to have been 100 episodes uh, with you fine folks and also you fine listeners who have, uh, who have voyaged with us, who have made the journey alongside us, uh, uh, a galaxy far, far away. And so we are so glad that you have uh, journeyed so far with us as we continue on and upward, and uh, another 100 episodes in the future, we all raise a glass in hopes of that, and in the meantime, we just hope that you watch a movie and have a conversation, and realize it doesn't always have to be the artsy-fartsy uh, David Lynch stuff, it, it can be just the good old-fashioned good trash, good um, gremlins and ghostbusters, and everything in between, and uh, that's the sort of stuff we do on this show, and we will continue to do, as long as you folks keep listening, and so we thank you for that, and until then, uh, we'll see you. Wait. Oh, we've got to announce something. Fool we? of a took. Nice. we got to tell the people what to watch for next week. Next week's pick is from Ms. Alexandra Bohannon. What is your selection? Monty Python in the Holy Grail. <laughs> that was terrible. The sharp pointy teeth. But I appreciate the thought. <laughs> Look, I was trying to do half of the title of the show where it goes, Monty Python's Flying Circus. Oh, and yeah. And the Grail. Grail. But the Ted. point is, I could not be more excited. Good pick, Alex, for favorite movies of all time. Yeah, it's got a it's got a deep, you know, long term meaning with me and feels and stuff like that. And I don't know if we'd ever do this movie if we don't do it during favorite movie times. So that's a good pick, and I'm very very excited to be me looking too. at it with you all. And until we catch that movie, in the meantime, uh, we will see you next time.
Dalton just ripped the most heinous fart I've ever smelled in my entire life. I hope this makes the outtakes. I know it won't, but I want everyone to know across time and space that Dalton farts and it smells awful. I'm so embarrassed. (laughs) It was an accident. It wasn't an accident. It was an accident waiting to happen.